welcome to Why Make, where we talk with makers from different disciplines about what inspires them to make. With your hosts, Rob Helmkamp and Eric Wolken. If you'd like to learn more about the makers we interview on Why Make, please go to our website, why-make.com. And please help support the Why Make podcast on our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash why make podcast or the Patreon link on our website. A quick program note. This conversation was recorded in late November 2020 when the COVID-19 pandemic was in full swing. As you listen now and possibly in the very near future, it continues to be a focal point of all of our lives and a prominent part of many of our conversations. In episode 33 of Why Make, we talk with furniture maker, sculptor, and educator Andy Buck. Andy is currently a full professor in the School for American Crafts in the College of Art and Design at the Rochester Institute of Technology. He has also taught at the Oregon College of Art and Craft and given workshops at Anderson Ranch, Haystack, Penland, and Peters Valley. Andy's work has always seemed to embody fun and whimsical forms, but we step behind the whimsy to talk about the serious ideas he's exploring in his work and the unique design vocabulary he has developed. I have been an admirer of Andy's work for a long time, and his fun play on tools and toilet bowl plungers inspired some of my early work, including an ongoing fly swatter series. So grab a brush and a can of milk paint and join us as we see what makes Andy Buck tick. So, Andy Buck, welcome to Why Make. Yeah, welcome, um, Andy. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. We're going to start this in the, the informal way we start all of our uh, Why Make conversations, which Tradition, is, if you will. So the Why Make question, um, softball or not, is when's your first memory of actually making something? Boy, um, I, I didn't really make anything as a, as a kid in that, in that traditional way. Um, I, my dad was my dad was a, a doctor an epidemiologist and he was really into sciences and reading and and I don't I didn't really we had artwork in our house it was a lot of beautiful things from around the world that my dad had brought back but I didn't really um, from from really, travels was yeah he tra- so yeah so he you know he as a specialist in tropical medicine he he traveled the world and would bring back, you know, all sorts of carvings and paintings oh, and wow. tapestries and different things. My mom was a field nurse and they would go together and um, to Africa and Indonesia and all over and come back with these objects. But I never I never made anything really until um, see my dad would, you know, he would take time with us. And I remember getting a chemistry set and <laughs> we, made, we made some stink bombs. Oh, nice. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and threw them at the neighbor's house and stuff. Um, but got in a bunch of trouble. Um, but I didn't. Um, I think it was. It wasn't until I went to VCU I was getting a degree in political science, and I needed to take a class, an art class. I needed a few credits in art. And this really great friend of mine, Gretchen Englefield, said, "Hey, there's this woodworking class. You should take it. And it's really fun. And it was taught by a guy named Bill Hammersley, who." Um, ended up being a real big influence on me, but um, I I took this class and loved it, and I made this like little bent laminated I don't know what you would call it kind of a reliquary thing. It had this like dangly crystal. <laughs> it was kind of I don't know. It took me all semester to make this thing, <laughs> and and it was you know I think I gave it to my parents, and I was kind of I was kind of hooked at that point. I just really loved um, making things. It kind of took me into a place. Um, where I, you know, just into a deep place in my imagination, I sort of felt that that sense of flow that uh, 
is talked about by Mihaly, Shis Mihaly, the, the author, where he talks about getting into a state of flow. So that's kind of, that was my first thing I remember that was of any consequence. So some of the stuff that your dad brought home and your mom brought home, the masks and everything, what did you think about that when they were, you know, bringing it home? I guess it was on the, maybe on the walls in your house, in your living room. Yeah. I mean, it was, um, it was around us. So it really became part of the, the everyday things that my sister and I would see in the house, but it wasn't until later that I sort of found that those would be sort of aesthetic influences in my work. But, you know, it was definitely around. The other interesting part of, I'd say, all of our shared backgrounds, because Rob's dad was an epidemiologist as well. And my, my dad, my dad was a research biologist. So, you know, having a background in, you know, having been around scientists growing up, the scientific method's not that different from the art method. It's just a problem-solving technique, and it's a problem-solving technique that I use often in my work. You know, whether it's actually embedded in how we go about solving problems in our work, I think it's I think it's there, and I think it's a it's a valuable what is it um, latent thing in our brains from from growing up is like this is how you mm-hmm. solve problems. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I know with for me, I, uh, I think it, trusting. Trusting my gut and um, using sort of intuitive skills was, I think, more of a breakthrough for me with my Mm -hmm. work. Um, And all of these um, visual references and things that were both in in my home and the things I researched later, um, I could trace them back to, you know, to maybe maybe it was like a longing to be with my my dad when he was traveling or maybe it was like trying to get his, um, you know, trying to get his approval or something like that too. Cause I can remember like the, the things that the, the direction my, my dad pushed me was, you know, okay, well being a doctor is good. Being a scientist is good. Being a, a lawyer. Well, that's okay. You know, and, <laughs> um, but being a, being an artist, I mean, they, they appreciated art because they had it in their home, but they didn't, I didn't think they were like, well, if you want to do this, you know, this would make a good hobby, but you know, right. this isn't really something as a career. And so that became a, you know, that was a pretty big battle. Um, but in the end, it was something where I could, I could trace back and say that, um, you know, my parents through the, their travel and through the, the things that I got to see because of their work, um, that really helped me. Cause when I was five, dad, you know, came to my sister and I and said, Hey kids, um, how would you feel about moving to Geneva, Switzerland? Oh, wow. And we were, and I was, you know, I was a little kid, I was five and we moved to Geneva and I went to the international school for eight years till came home um, for, you know, eighth grade. But during that time too, it was, you know, just really learning about different cultures and going to school with kids from all over the world and, you know, appreciating different um, ethnicities and uh, different ways of looking at the world, different, different things that people were doing. And it was kind of neat to have friends that were from Iran and friends that were from Wales and Italy and, you name it. And, you know, all these kids were playing together and it was a pretty eye-opening experience to have that. So I think that in connection with looking around at objects and looking around at the world, those things kind of stick um, together for me. Yeah. No, the other thing that just struck me, because again, you know, we were talking earlier about the seven degrees of separation, you, Rob, and I, you know, a lot of similarities. Rob traveled a lot as a child when I was six, um, we moved to Paris for the year. My my father worked for the French Atomic Energy Commission. The exposure to language at an early age, I mean, I think it had a profound impact on me. 
Um, I think language really imprints the brain at an early age in an, in an interesting way. When you get exposed to all these new pathways your brain can work and you have the ability to think in multiple languages. Yeah. I, I, I could speak French a little bit when I was six. And certainly as soon as we got back to the States, I, I left it all in the dust. But my mom was a, my mom became a fluent, um, you know, speaker in French. And mm -hmm. I do think all these interesting ways the brain gets imprinted as a child, I think definitely. It is really interesting. I mean, in, in my experience, I traveled a lot in the United States with my family. I mean, we went to 48 of the 50, like by the time I was or 46 of the 50, by the time I was, you know, 12 years old or so. So we did a lot of traveling and, you know, seeing different cultures within the United States, you know, in indigenous cultures in the U S and, you know, so even different languages within that, you know, I've heard Spanish a lot when we lived in Southern California. And while I didn't necessarily learn it, I, you know, learned enough to be able to talk with folks that I would run into and, and, in Southern California and realize that, you know, there's a bunch of different worlds within what we were growing up in and gosh, what definitely. Yeah. I had to do like when, when we, um, when I started school in Switzerland, we were, uh, it was sort of mandatory to take both French and German. And then there was English. So it was, um, through those years, I mean, my parents are German. So I had that, had to learn German, um, well, you know, new German just because of my yeah. family. But then we le you learned French and, you know, by the time I left, Switzerland, I could speak French just like any of the kids in the neighborhood. You couldn't really tell I was American. And then when I we moved back to the to the U.S., I was going to take. Um, I ended up taking Spanish because I couldn't take like the the level of French in ninth grade. Yeah. So, but so I did. I mean, language in that sense is really was really something that was just kind of something we had to do. And most people in Europe just you know, walk in the streets uh, there, people would just be able to turn on their English, even though, you know, people just spoke different languages. And if you go on the train, I remember you take the train and you get you, you're, um, you know, you're in Geneva, everyone's speaking French and you keep um, rolling in the train towards Zurich and all of a sudden everyone's speaking German. And then you, you know, get to Milano and everyone's uh, speaking Italian. So there was a lot, you know, just uh, it was very natural for people to learn different languages. It was also like, I think at that time too, when I was little, we had to do music too. So for me, music mm -hmm. is another kind of language, you know, where I feel like I learning those things at a, at an early age, it's kind of, um, it's kind of a, you know, non-discursive language, you know, creating melodies. And to me, that is also what's really connected to visual arts is, mm -hmm. is that non-discursive way of trying to communicate with people that's really been something helpful were your parent were your parents into music um they were into they were my dad was really into classical music and he, i think he did have a johnny cash record but <laughs> <laughs> but yeah he's he was really into like um mozart and schubert and um oh wow brahms and bach mm -hmm. and all that stuff and so um i didn't really know that much about it at, until you know he he kind of taught me quite a quite a lot about that stuff but um i was always trying to i was always sort of a little bit more on the re rebellious side so i had to kind of search search through you know what made sense for me in some ways i would refer to music almost as an emotional language um oh for sure mm -hmm. and again the parallels between visual arts and music uh, to me are amazing i mean um, rob and i are both musicians actually i wouldn't call myself a musician i'd call myself a 
a hack player. But you know, the couple musical theory classes I've taken, you know, the whole the whole notion behind most music is to create tension and release tension. You mm-hmm. create these grand moments and then you release and you <laughs> it's this constant crescendo rising and and lowering crescendo and it's not it's not any different in the visual arts i i don't think at all i mean you want to create tension in your work and you want to release tension right. and however you 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 know you visually use that tool you know language is uh language pops up in the visual arts many ways mm-hmm. people that directly use words people that actually use sound and music and people that create visual tension mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 all one world. Yeah, no, that's true. I I also think I mean like furniture, you know, and artwork. Um, they you know they inhabit spaces that transform spaces. So it's a little bit like music in that way too, where um, you know you can transform an environment with the objects that are in there. There's tons and tons of different types of music as well as you know tons of different types of art. I mean, every think about it, every song is different, or every band and their album is different. Mm-hmm. You know, my furniture is different than yours. That's different than Eric's. And mm-hmm. it's all just, you know, it, it, yeah. it, the beauty of it all being different. It is a way to connect people together, too. Mm-hmm. And I find like the just uh, trying to communicate through an object, it's it's challenging in its own right. But it's also it has a way of um, also attracting like minded souls, I guess. Again, you know, art is a form of communication. It's a form of language. And uh, I mean, this is my own axe to grind, but I personally think all I think all work is narrative. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether you've whether you're actually that's the intended purpose in it. I think some part of you is going into that work and that is creating a narration of who you are in that moment. So, right. God, I'm, I'm waxing really poetic here. I, I need to stop myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're talking about and you know you and i both have an interest in heavy metal and but just going into a club and seeing a band mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden you're you're surrounded by family that we're all interested in the same thing you know to mm-hmm. to absorb this this art you know for for you know i love being able to call it that you know cuz mm-hmm. it is you know i i was i had a chat with my cousin a while ago and i was like man every one of your songs is like a little portrait or a little piece of uh, of art and he's like oh yeah i didn't think about it like that and mm-hmm. it's like it it they are and you know they attract a certain type of people and i mean we, we go forever off on that kind of tangent yeah. but it's really cool how it does bring people together it, yeah well there's a diy kind of spirit of i mean the music that when i when i first um came back to the u.s um you know was kind of um kind of the normal I don't know what you call it, late seventies, um, you know, Leonard Skinner and stuff the kids were listening to. But then pretty quickly I found some friends and they kept, they were driving down to, to DC and, um, there were these, um, bands popping up and, and, uh, um, it was kind of the D- whole beginning of the DC hardcore scene. And we would go down and see, you know, um, bands that were on the discord label, like, um, you know, uh, bad brains and minor threat and oh um, uh, did you did you see issue. did you see right of spring at all yeah they were around all, oh yeah. that's yeah. so great man and see, um, see, pro- see and gee jump around the stage like that is just 
Yeah. Oh, and Fugazi. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess Fugazi was a little later, but yeah, like um, Ian Mackay's band. Um, and, and then, you know, just kind of like seeing seeing that it, they were doing everything themselves, you know, they're mm-hmm. making their yeah. own album uh, covers, they were doing everything. And that to me reminds me a lot of kind of the studio furniture thing, too. So we're kind of meandering around a little bit. So you're gotten into these woodworking classes, these extra woodworking classes at, oh, at VCU. So I went to so I went to college. I was um, I I was going to do um First, I was going to go to medical school. And I was studying biology, and I was doing terrible in school. And then, then I switched to taking more history classes and started doing better. And then I ended up majoring in political science. But my sophomore year, I discovered you know this woodworking class through my friend um, Gretchen, and and then um, I kept taking those classes, and it was great. It was really eye opening. My teacher, Bill Hammersley, um, used to do these slideshows and taught us about Wendell Castle and about. Alphonse Mattia and Roseanne Summerson and Wendy Mariama and all these American, uh, you know, amazing furniture studio furniture makers. And, you know, they were, they just seen images of their work. They were like legends, you know, just um, these people, you know, you didn't think you'd ever meet them or anything like that, but yeah. it was really influential on me. Um, but then I finished school and I got a job working on, on Capitol Hill um, as a legislative aide. I worked for um, this a congressman named Leon Panetta mm-hmm. who uh, ended up, in um, Clinton's chief of staff, and then also was the head of CIA and director of defense later. But um, when I worked for him in, in the late 80s, um, he was a congressman. Um, I worked there for about a year and a half, and then finally I just quit. I just had to, decided I was going to pursue woodworking and furniture. And uh, my parents were not too happy about that decision at the time. <laughs> From Capitol Hill to the wood shop. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then I started more seriously looking into my schooling. So I went, I meandered after that. I went to what was Southeastern Massachusetts University, which was also called Swain School of Design. And now it's uh, UMass Dartmouth, but it's, okay. it's sort of where the program and artisanry um, moved from BU. Um, so I studied um, with Alphonse Mattia and Michael Prashala, and I did that for a while. And then um, Michael Prashala asked me if I wanted to be an assistant for him at Penland School. Mm-hmm. So then I went down to Penland for the summer and assisted a number of people. And then I had dropped out of grad school and uh, just stayed at Penland and um, did did work down there for a year. And then I became a core student, which meant I had a job. Um, I was a, a weekend cook. So I, I cooked on weekends and then I got to take classes during the week. And that, you know, just kept meeting new people and learning from other, you know, just more woodworkers yeah. and other artists. It's a good world to be in. Yeah, it was cool down there. And, and that's, you know, that was my, um, you know, time living in North Carolina and I guess down and around Asheville in that area where that was a really good experience for me. Um, Eye opening. And then I ended up deciding, okay, well, I'm going to go back to graduate school, but I decided to apply to RISD. Um, so I went to Rhode Island School of Design um, a year later. Was Roseanne Summerson head of that program at that point? Um, well, she was she was in charge of the grad program that I was in. And then um, Seth Stem was. Um, oh, yeah. Was up there. This was. I've got know? his book behind me, too. <laughs> I, oh, love, yeah. I love his design book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's out of print. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get. It's expensive. It's hard to get, <laughs> but that was probably one of the iconic furniture design books that came out in the mid '80s. Is it no? Or mm-hmm. I think it was the mid '80s. Yeah, it came out in the mid '80s, and I think every every design student had one. Yeah, it was it was, it was a really good book for referencing. Um, 
you know, how, how much room you need between, you know, your, your uh, chairs at a dining table. And he had a lot of formulas in there that were great, but he was a student of, um, of Bill Hammersley's and did a lot of bent lamination. And so there was that connection. Um, and, uh, and Roseanne um, was, was really great. She was very, very inspiring, super smart. And then um, Alphonse Mattia was also teaching there. Um, so I had some really good teachers at RISD and um, it was a really competitive and, and great experience to be working side by side with a lot of really good, good artists and designers. And, you know, we kept each other on our toes, you know, we'd get in there early to work and then we realized we'd had to stay late to work. And so we just really had this great community of, you know, just people trying to do their best. So what was your work like in graduate school? What would you say the, the main influences of your work were in graduate school? Um, well, that was the part I think that Roseanne was so great at, just trying to draw out who we are, um, who we were as, as makers. You know, for me, it was kind of that there's, um, there's an, an author named um, Tom Wolfe um, or Thomas Wolfe, not the bonfire, the vanities guy. But, right. But the, the Asheville, North Carolina guy. Yeah, 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 and one of his great um, quotes was, uh, "We're we're the sum total of all that we haven't counted," and kind of this idea that we're interconnected by everybody that we meet and everything we've done. And so, you know, with that as a question um, to draw from, you know, tried to think about my experience traveling, the different, you know, the different things that uh, that were influencing my work and all, the art that I enjoyed looking at. So, you know, there was there was uh, painters like Paul Clay and you know, artists like Calder and Noguchi and um, then later um, Martin Perrier, who um, Richard Deacon, different sculptors who really, um, I found their work just really tremendous. And so I would just kind of think about how I would try. That's to, a good word. <laughs> tremendous. <laughs> <laughs> well, just how to, you know, really how to, how to make work that was my own, but also, you know, look at the world through, through things that are, that are, um, that really kind of change you when you see them things yeah. that really influence you. So I was starting to think about my own, you know, personal de design language, um, you know, my own um, sort of aesthetic that I was trying to develop both with form and with color. And then, in, you know, um, really to answer that question, um, I was looking at furniture as a tool. And so, and I was thinking about what are tools, you know, tools are these, these things that we use every day to help us facilitate us with our lives. And so, you know, when you look at tools and you look at culture, you can look at the values that that culture has. You know, it used to be that we'd all sit around a big dining table, and that would the dining table was one of the one of the focal pieces of furniture in a home. And you know, as time changed, I guess maybe it was a a TV tray and and a big and a big TV um, and a recliner, or a recliner. <laughs> but you know, those you can look at, you can tell a lot by a, by a culture by the the tools that they value. And so, you know, that kind of became part of my thesis and what I was trying to study, try to learn about myself. You know, what do, what do I value and what types of objects would I want to have around me? And, and if I were to invent objects that were tools, that were furniture, what would they look like and how would I want people to interact with them? Right. So push-pull and furniture has always been, for me, I'm trying to express this properly, is function versus just exactly what the meaning of function is. Is function in its most operative sense, is it a useful object or a useless object? I'd like to frame that question as, well, what's the function of that object inside that culture? Right. That's what's really interesting about your work. You're sort of, you know, and we'll get to that later, is you're, you're more sort of, for lack of better words, cartoonish forms. Is that, 
it's an expression of something other than pure function. I just like to make that distinction as, as we as furniture makers are creating functional objects, but the, the functions are beyond merely sitting at a table or sitting yeah. in a chair or a, a flat surface. Um, don't know exactly. Yeah, no, I, no, I get that. Cause I, you know, function doesn't have to be utilitarian. I mean, fun- function exactly. can that's be something that, that's, em- yeah, emotive. So you were, you were starting to ask these questions of yourself during grad school mm-hmm. and to, to develop, I mean, you're basically developing a vocabulary, you're, you know, the alphabet that you're, you're giving yourself to use as a, as a maker. Yeah. And just looking at, you know, all sorts of things that, um, from American folk art to art, artwork of indigenous folks in different places like um, African, Oceanic, Aboriginal artwork, all of those things were also, there's kind of a, you kind of have to make. And that was something that I kind of realized too, that I just kind of needed to make stuff all the time. Um, it was kind of like kind of this thing that, that nagged at me. If I didn't make anything, I'd get really grumpy. Just needed to, always needed to work. I've, I've often thought making is just a disease. Mm-hmm. It's just a, it's a disease and as makers that if we don't make, we're just going to get sick. This, it's a good stress reliever too. Yeah, that's for sure. So as you, as you got out of graduate school, what, what were the next steps there? Did you, did you set up your own studio? Did you work for somebody else? Did you, did you go back to Capitol Hill? <laughs> well, I, I, um, after grad school, I did set up a, a studio. I got a job. I, I got a couple of opportunities. Seth Stem got me a, a job doing a little bit of teaching at Yale University at, for, at the sculpture the sculpture department. And I, I would take the train down to New Haven. And then I had a studio that I set up in New Bedford, Massachusetts, um, in a warehouse. And it was it was great. There were um, there's a studio right next door called um, Birth of Venus. And um, my friends, Charlie Swanson and Eckfellum and uh, um, Julie Morangello uh, were in there. And um, Emmy Ozawa, she makes some really amazing work. Um, so there is there are artists who were around, and we could we could ask each other about about what they thought of things. If I'd make something, I could carry it over there and go, "Hey, what do you think?" And um, then I got a job as a part time technician at RISD, so I would drive between Providence and New Bedford, and so I was doing some work. Then eventually, uh, I, heard, I heard about a, a place called Peters Valley Craft Center, and applied for a job working there. And so I, so my wife and I moved to, to Layton, New Jersey. It wasn't at all what I pictured of, you know, New Jersey It was really, really lush and beautiful. Um, Jerry Osgood used to call it, he said, it's like, it's like going to Guatemala. Um, Cause it was just so green and, you know, it was in the wa- uh, Delaware water gap. Uh, just really, really beautiful. It's actually, if you remember, Rob, that's where Wayne Rabb. Yeah, got yeah, started. my teacher Wayne Rabb. Oh wow! Um, oh, that's right. I went to Haywood Community College, as as did Eric. Okay, Wayne was my um my first roommate at the first uh, the first Furniture Society conference. We we never actually met each other because I guess he was kind of an early bird and and went to bed early, and I I was you know out there trying to meet everybody and stayed up really late because I was so excited about you know stuff. Wayne's one of our one of our first interviews. If you, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that, but it was it was really fun to be able to go talk with him a couple of years ago when we went to Haywood. Yeah, that's awesome. And I actually got asked to teach a class at uh, Peters Valley two years ago, and I wanted to teach this way out figurative sculpture class, and it went nowhere. I got one student registered, and that was it. And they canceled. Oh, the that's class. too bad. It's pretty difficult. I had to like 
when I was working there, I had this, you know, my, my, all my tools and my studio area. And then in the other room was the Peters Valley wood shop. And, and, uh, I got to pick the people that would come and teach. Um, and that's, it's a difficult thing, oh, you wow. know, you have to, you have to sort of, um, think about what people are interested in learning and, and, um, someone like me, I'd love to take a figurative sculpture class. Um, but some of the, some of the folks that sign up it's like dovetails, dovetails, dovetails. Or obviously, I, I I failed that test. I I thought about what would I like to teach, and then I realized, yeah, nobody really wants to learn that. <laughs> Except for Andy, I would. Yeah, Andy I, would have been, I would have loved to take your class. <laughs> well, Dang it, let's yeah, try it again. Maybe, maybe uh, Peter's Valley will ask me in the in the post pandemic when people are uh, like, we'll do, we'll take anything to get out of the house now that we've all been uh, locked up for the last nine months. But, um, yeah, that that was a like Peter's Valley is interesting because it's like really feels really remote, but then you can get on a bus and in an hour and a half you're you're in Manhattan, and it was pretty neat to have that um, balance. I could make make work and then go into the city and buy some records and go to get some Indian spices and different things from Zabars and different different uh, things from the city, like um, some culture from there you know yeah go see museums and stuff yeah museums and everything it was great there were some great studio furniture galleries were there were they still open what was the uh where was the oh god i'm trying to think because i took a class from tom hucker many years ago well there was um the the gallery the big guy when i was in school there was uh like peter joseph gallery had started Peter Joseph, right. That was that exactly. So was Peter Joseph still in business? Um, yeah. Were, in fact, uh, I, at the tail end of that gallery, I started showing there when Michael Monroe was the director of it. Um, but I would go to I would go to the openings and it was really generous. Like when I was in school, you know, Roseanne or, or um, Alphonse or Wendy Mariama or Wendell Castle would have a show. We would all flock down to the city. And Peter Joseph was really generous. He he would always let us um after the after the openings, he would have these parties at his, this amazing Fifth Avenue, or I, I don't, probably wasn't on Fifth Avenue. That's where the gallery was. But he had this amazing apartment, and it was just filled with beautiful work. And he would invite everybody back to his apartment, and we could you know check out the work. And he was uh, you know it's really neat and get to sort of talk to the different artists. But yeah, that was around I think when I was at Peters Valley. Um, trying to think if uh, John Elder Gallery had started. So John Elder was a worked for Peter Joseph. And then he started a gallery um, after Peter Joseph's gallery closed down. And then there was Pritam and Eames out in the Hamptons. And yeah, um, there right. was, um, you know, so there were some other furniture, furniture ga- galleries or art galleries that showed furniture. Leo Kaplan Modern was another one. And um, a Franklin Parish Gallery uh, also. But it was exciting going in and seeing all that work. and Inspiring. Yeah. Very inspiring, probably. So what happened at Peter's Valley? Were you largely just making your yeah, own? Yeah, I was making my 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 own stuff. Um, I had my first solo show after making that work. I had a connection with um, Gallery Naga and Clark Gallery, Meredith Moses and Arthur Dion, and they had come through the studios um, at when I was still in school at RISD. And later, um, I got a, my first solo show at Clark Gallery. So I made work for that show, um, brought it up, and it was. It was pretty neat, you know. Some some of the some of the things where you you know you you put it all out there. You you you've got a credit card that's maxed out on you know <laughs> wood bills and everything else, and you you have a show and you you know hope to sell some of your some of your things. And then you know the other part too is um, 
just some of the just some of the support you know you you can get um so i remember having the show there and um one day i was i called to check in and meredith moses says oh there's somebody here wants to say hi um um is looking at your work and i was like oh okay who and she hands a phone to somebody and on the other end is is judy mckee and and she and she's like, hey, Andy, you know, this is really cool work. Keep it up. Keep going. Um, and that's stuff like that. You know, you could just you get a, you get somebody to give you a little acknowledgement and it just goes a long way. It just makes you want to work harder. I remember the opening too. Um, uh, Jerry Osgood came and he had been somebody who really gave me a lot of support. So having people like that just giving you a little encouragement. Little nudge. Yeah. Yeah. Goes a long way. So that kind of had me going for a while. And then... Um, after Peter's Valley, I got my first teaching job and headed out to Oregon College of Art and Craft. So we moved to Portland, Oregon, and I taught there for a couple of years, and that was pretty great. Before we go over to Portland, talk about some of your work in that first show. Like you're developing this vocabulary of work and making work. So oh, yeah. you were probably going mad, like excited, developing all this work for Clark Gallery to get the, your your first solo together. Yeah, I was kind of, um, I had a couple of pieces that started out from, that were from graduate school. Like I had a piece that was, was this um, broom cabinet. So I, I made a handmade broom and then it, the cabinet was kind of like the shape of the broom, a little bit like a, a guitar, you know, like a guitar case is a shape of a guitar. You know, I was kind of thinking about things in that way. Again, I was sort of thinking about tools, and I was mm-hmm. thinking about the, the broom being this um, sort of iconic object. But, you know, we usually use a broom and we use it to clean. But then we then we tuck it away in a, in a cupboard somewhere and it's yeah. not really celebrated. So the idea of that broom cabinet was to celebrate the broom. And then also in the show, we're just more um, sort of form driven pieces. Um, there was a couple of, of these chairs that were inspired by um, fiddlehead ferns mm-hmm. in the way that mm-hmm. fiddleheads are you harvest them at the very beginning of spring so there's kind of this uh this small window the small you know time capsule from which you can you know get that uh get that that food the Blossfelt chairs probably. yeah the That's Blossfelt probably chairs yeah so yeah. those you know there was a few pieces that were influenced by the photo- the photographer Carl Blossfelt and um, okay and so he did these like close-up images of of sprouting plants and really beautiful black and white images. Those were, you know, highly influential, you know, just. Right. Almost sort of like taking an object out of context. Yeah. Yeah. In the sense that you don't really know exactly what that object is. And then just connecting, you know, sort of um, natural world as an influence, you know, just looking at, I looked at a lot of things, you know, plant, flora, fauna, you know, but mostly flora, you know, mostly, mostly plant based things, but also animals and sort of the anthropomorphic nature of, of, animals and how they stand and the gesture um, was pretty inf- important to me too. Yeah. A lot of your pieces kind of look like they're perching or about to move, kind of have a stance <laughs> with their legs. They're al- almost animated, but mm-hmm. not quite moving just at, I guess at a standstill. Yeah. I think too, like starting to really think about color and how, um, you know, what color, I mean, we're talking about emotion and emotive work and how color can play a, a role in helping an object, you know, to either, exaggerate, uh, you know, sort of the form or to allow your eye to run through the object, sort of like the eye path of a piece. Like where, when you look at an object, where do you start and where do you finish when you're looking at it? And color can help you kind of uh, draw your eye to certain parts of it first to kind of give a little bit of that, you know, kind of give, give the, the viewer kind of a direction and how to view an object. 
Well, color can draw you in really quickly to a certain part and then kind of stand back and explore once you get sucked into the colorful part. It can also elicit a real emotion. Interestingly enough, I, I don't recall in my education, other than a few design classes, getting any real instruction in color. And to this day, I feel very limited in my color palette because I just don't know enough about color to really explore. But I know that if I want to emphasize something or have it really pop or really express an emotion, I can use color. I'm just not, I just don't know how to use color. It's kind of interesting. I'm aware of the tool, but I just don't have the techniques. It's kind of I think a lot of furniture makers are pretty scared of color. I've got a question on top of that. So, you know, most of us probably took color theory classes, but the emotive quality and the psychological quality that you're talking about in your work, Andy, with color, did you learn that through trial and error, talking with other people, or did did you actually learn it through some of your formal education? There was the Albers stuff, you know, Joseph Albers um, uh, theory, but I mostly it's just kind of intuitive. I didn't really know how to how to paint anything until I just started doing it, I guess. Um, right. And um, looking at artwork too, just things that resonated with me. Like um, think about somebody like Sean Scully and his uh, pattern painting and stripes and different ways of activating a surface. I found that really um, interesting. And then also just even more sort of demure kinds of color plane painters, you know, where where you would, you know, kind of look at look at a color field and that, and that would kind of give you sort of an emotional sense. But yeah, I didn't really learn it and formally, I'm sure that the the influence of my teachers and the things that I was looking at helped me, but not really anything formal. And are you are you teaching any color? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I teach people how to how to use color, but I um, and we talk about it. But I guess it's one of those things where not all the people that I teach want to use color. You know, it's interesting when I first started teaching at RIT, I taught for two years with uh, Richard Scott Newman, and he he makes the most exquisite. 18th century uh, French influenced work. It's just just exquisite stuff. And when we talk about color, he's, he talks about using wood, using the color of wood and that when he picks out his boards, he's picking his color. And yeah. um, it's a different, it's a palette of color, but it's, he's doing it with the, the actual material. And I was mm-hmm. doing it later, almost like I was building something and that became the canvas for my color. But but his right. his approach was that the canvas was created and the palette was created at the same time with the wood. And I found that really pretty fascinating. That's what I do in a lot of my work, mostly just, you know, finished wood. We seldom get into technique conversations here, but you're a big proponent of using milk paints. I, I love milk paints too, but milk paints have a definite palette. They're a very, it's a very reserved color in that they don't have a lot of vibrancy, but the texture and the feel of them is wonderful. You know, we've talked with a couple of other artists that have used a lot of color. Um, Valerie Burlage is one of them, um, Lorraine Lilly Studios in Asheville, a wonderful uh, maker. And she won't use milk paint. She was like, yeah, the intensities of the color don't work for me. I'm just sort of curious. I mean, why did you come to milk paint? And do you still use milk paint? And what are some of your techniques with milk paint to, to nerd out on milk paint? Yeah, I mean, I use a lot of different kinds of paint. I mean, I um, when I first started using color, it was when I was at VCU. And uh, there was a, a graduate student who later went on to teach, but his name is Graham Campbell. And he used Japan colors, like oil, oil-based paint with Japan dryers. And he used kind of a st- stenciling technique. 
And that was my you know, first try and trial into color. But then um, with milk paint, there's so many things you can do. Like you can buy the milk paint without the color in it. Just the casein powder. Yeah, the, the paint without pigment. And then you can add whatever you want to it. Um, but I've, um, but a lot of times I use golden paints, the golden um, acrylic paints. The, the acrylics? They make, really oh, yeah. they make really good colors. And it's the golden, um, they're sort of these super saturated liquid colors. You can add those to the milk paint. So you can change up the palette. So you don't have oh, to. Oh, okay. I didn't know those were compatible. So you can actually add golden yeah. pigments, golden um, acrylic pigments to milk paint and it. It won't just turn into a separated mess. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, so I do that. I'm, you know, add, I change up the colors. I um, also use a lot of graphite afterwards because you know if there's they're bright colors and later I rub graphite over the surface kind of to the idea like Paul Clay, his paintings they, they, he has these bright colors, but then but then the um, surfaces are kind of I don't know muted out. The, the bright colors sort of muted out by sort of a darker tone and i'm not sure i think he might have just painted a black wash over the bright yeah. colors but oh. um but i use graphite a lot of times over top of surfaces um to get that effect and then i seal that in so what do, what do you seal it with i've i've always been curious about how how these oh yeah so i do like unless it's a secret <laughs> no 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 secrets <laughs> um well because graphite can make a mess can it yeah graphite is a resist so you have to be careful so so um over graphite i'll spray fixative like spray fix mm-hmm. and then after the spray fixative then i can spray lacquer over that and other put over other finishes over it so far so good i mean you know <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's always that, an experiment la- but uh, lacquer lacquer is just what you would put over like if you did regular milk paint yeah you can do pretty much do i sometimes use like a wipe a wipe on finish there's a stuff called master gel um by balins yeah um, just a bunch of different, um, different things like just to wipe on poly or yeah. Oil and oil varnish works. mix. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Although the beauty of milk paint is, is that you don't necessarily have to put a finish on it and you really change the nature of the, the vibrancy of the color. When you, when you put a finish on it, I just like to rub it out with steel wool. And whenever I put a finish on top of milk paint, it, it, I've never been thrilled with the results. But you know, that's yeah, just I, put, me. I usually but. keep the finish on top pretty thin, but but you do kind of need to put something on it because it if it gets wet, it'll you know you'll get like uh, and stuff like that. So, but um, right. yeah, so I don't know. I just for me, I just kind of that's the exciting part when I'm get to start using color and you know you get the sort of form worked out, um, you know, kind of really try to bring the piece to life. So, um, so what are your current influences? What's, what's influencing your work these days? Well, I guess, um, most recently I've been doing these wall pieces. They're kind of, I'm trying to think about transforming the two, 2d into the 3d. So I'm going to start with the, the wall pieces and then I'm going to use all the, all the form studies that I've been working on the sort of visual vocabulary of shapes, kind of turn those into three dimensional pieces. I'm pretty excited about these kind of hieroglyphics sort of that I'm making. But I also like not too long ago, um, did a collaboration with, with a poet, it, this old friend of mine named Carl Adamschick. I ran into him. It's kind of weird. I was, I was got invited to Hawaii to jury their woodworking show. And I had like a couple hours a break and I decided to take a walk on the beach and I'm walking on the beach and all of a sudden I run into this old friend of mine. 
I was like, Carl. He's like, Andy. And we're like, what the fuck? What are you doing here? And um, and so we sat down and and uh, he had said, what are you doing? He said, I've been writing some poetry. I just I just got the Walt Whitman Award for poetry. I was like, no way, that's awesome. He said, how about you? And I said, yeah, you know, I've been carving these little people. And he's like, why? And he's, I said, well, you know, my my dad just died and started carving these people and just couldn't stop. So I ended up with these twenty three little carvings. And so he said, well, send me pictures when you're back home. And so we parted ways. And then I started this correspondence with him. I'd send him a picture of one of the carvings. And then we had this kind of collaboration going that was kind of based on some of our discussions. There's the, there's this, this, um, you know, we were kind of talking about death and about trying to, you know, kind of understand someone's inner, inner thoughts, um, what they were thinking. So he, introduced me to this book called the Spoon River Anthology um, by Edgar Lee Masters. It's all about like this fictional town and all, like there's 200 and some poems about the, there's, it's sort of the epitaphs of these, of the, the people who died in this town. I started sending him these pictures of my carvings and then he wrote little poems for each one. And we ended up publishing a book of his poetry and my carvings. Um, and then I've had a couple of shows. I took the poems and laser engraved them onto mm-hmm. panels and then presented those with the little wow, carvings. Wonderful. So that was really cool. It was kind of a, a nice way to, to sort of imbue these little figures, kind of a whole life Almost and personality. A story, individual stories. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really, I mean, to me, that, that was something interesting. I took one of the little figures, 3D scanned it, and I, I blew it up to a, a six foot carving. Yeah. So that was kind of neat. It was like how something translates from from being uh, two and a half inches tall, three inches well, tall. They, they were really six. small guys. Yeah. Yeah. So that the one that I recently exhibited was the one that closely resembled my dad mm-hmm. kind of in my carving. And it was just called Alfred. That's my dad's name and my name too. But yeah, so it was kind of interesting to see. It was like kind of a statue of a, of a regular guy, you know, kind of thing. So that was very inspiring to me. I've been, I've been also, since I do so much like uh, subtractive carving, mm-hmm. I've been trying to think of techniques to build that are additive. So I'm using strips of wood and creating hollow forms so that I've been trying to make these big, giant, hollow pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're usually natural wood with little with colored accent components, but but mostly mostly natural. So I've got a a bunch of different kinds of little projects. That's such a nice contrast with the natural and the paint. Kind of mm-hmm. visually striking, but in just kind of a low key kind of way, mm-hmm. like with the paint kind of backs up and the accents everything, right? And sort of moving away from those your more sort of iconic earlier work, which I think is I don't want to denigrate it by calling it cartoon like, but actually that's a, a positive statement for me because I find cartoons very expressive because there's this wonderful wishbone shape in a lot <laughs> of your work and. I'm sort of wondering what what was the origins of that wishbone shape. I would say those are, um, you know, those those shapes come from looking at a lot of African artwork. So I guess you know my point to that work too is is not that it's sort of humorous or that it's not really intended to be cartoony, but it's more it's more about the color. I don't know. I it's funny because a lot of people say they see a lot of humor in that work, and I guess when I make it, sometimes I see a lot of sadness yeah. in it. I don't know. It's kind of like a you know, like a muted color or, um, or the shapes. I'm really interested in, 
if it's furniture, of exploring different ways of looking at an object. So not like not like the typical archetype of furniture, like you know a table with four legs, but maybe it's a table with two legs that are you know those um, wishbone shapes, and that'll do the the same. Kind of putting job. your own spin on a table. Since yeah. we're talking about some of your older work, I've got to throw in a kind of a, a thank you and a kind of a you were a big inspiration on some of the my earlier pieces. I made a started making fly swatters in 2005, and oh, it, was a, it was a it was a it was a production summer at Haywood where Wayne challenged us to you know we had to make a production item during the summer, and I didn't want to make cutting boards or salt and pepper shakers or anything, so I was like I want to choose something that's a little bit different. And I was just looking around and looking around and looking around, and I ran into your toilet plungers, and <laughs> I I just loved them, and I I thought they were great, so I started making fly swatters with you know kind of the idea of that that handle and you know giving us kind of i i looked at it as giving kind of a whimsical spin to something that was kind of mundane mm-hmm. like That's toilet awesome. plunger but you know so i i ran into your work all, all that time ago and it's like ah that's it I could do, That's I could awesome. do a flash water spin, and you know, I, I make a, a big batch of them a, every couple of years. And- oh, that's cool. Yeah, when I started those tools, I. I had we had an assignment to incorporate. It was I was teaching in Oregon, and we went to the dump, and everybody had to find something <laughs> and in, incorporate something from the dump into a piece of work that they were going to make. And so I was um, walking around, and I found all these um, implements, all these uh, all these you know rusty old tools. Yeah. And so the first batch or, or the first show of my work is I'm trying to reinvent the handles mm-hmm. for all these tools. So I had a show at John Elder Gallery called uh, Tools Rehandled. And it was just kind of trying to, re, you know, think of how, you know, rehandling, but yeah. also, you know, how how you could invent a handle. So I had a whole wall of those tools that I made from the tools that kind of led to, to the hardware store, you know, from the dump to the hardware store. And my first couple were... Um, toilet brushes oh and I that's made, cool <laughs> yeah i made like a they were like four foot uh, they were like these four foot toilet brushes <laughs> and that was pretty cool they were from that i went to the the plungers but it was kind of neat that the the toilet brush the big giant toilet brush i ended up selling that to the ceo of um american standard who um they make uh, urinals yeah. and stuff so I thought that's, that's, that's pretty fun. I love the idea of kind of reworking tools like that. Eric, Eric's done something similar to that as well. So it's just, it, it's kind of neat to see something. Actually, we interviewed um, Ellie Richards, who's been doing some really crazy stuff with brooms. Um, oh, cool. And she kind of like just putting a spin on it. Here's mm-hmm. what, here's what I see. Here's, here's, here's my invention of it or reinvention of it. Well, and, and getting back to that issue of, um, I mean, where you started, which is really curious, where you said you don't necessarily see those objects as humorous, and yet they're, they come across as humorous. I have that, you know, a lot of my people think my work is very whimsical and, and humorous, and it's just the opposite. Uh, to me, as a maker, I am, I am angsting over every decision and every mm-hmm. mark, and it may come across as humorous. But the intent and the process was anything but humorous. And that's just, I think there's just such a, an interesting dichotomy in who we are as makers and how our work Absolutely. comes across. And just, and the, the wonderful communication of being a visual artist. You know, you have no idea how anybody yeah. else is going to see your work. So you, it's, uh, it's, it's just a really interesting process. Although I had to think that the toilet brush and the plunger, there was some humor. Yeah, I know those. I mean, it was kind of fun to, 
reinvent those or try to exaggerate those. And the plungers were kind of like, okay, well, what other tools, what other tools can I make that sort of relate to, um, you know, that initial, the first broom that I made, the first broom cabinet. That's been a re- reoccurring theme where I've taken tools and made, you know, made pieces sort of surrounding them and sort of celebrating them. I've made like six foot long garden shears and <laughs> and also incorporating poetry with those pieces too. So they kind of... Right. And then you sort of almost create a ritual around them when you have a cabinet for them because it's it's almost like the shakers putting their chairs up on... Uh on on racks off the floor i mean it was more than just a cleanliness thing it was like this is this is a ritualistic yeah this is a ritualistic experience this we pull the chairs down to mm-hmm. gather what, one of the things that i always found to the point of almost annoying is that a lot of people would see my fly swatters and i'm sure you probably experienced this with some of the the plungers or is that they would just say oh that's so cute uh no it's not cute it's like thank you for the mm-hmm. compliment but it's like it's not cute that's not what i was going for yeah, no, that's that's definitely the case where you know it's just kind of kind of rethinking things. Also, maybe um, finding something that's that's kind of been discarded mm-hmm. and um, bringing it back to life, kind of giving it a new life. That's that's something that that I really liked about working on those tools because they were just rusting away, and I got to kind of you know bring them back. It's not unlike tuning up an old tool. You know, you just kind of bring something back. I'm going to start to wrap it up here. But, you know, we've been talking to a lot of educators lately, and this is certainly a unique circumstance in that um, a lot of people are teaching remotely and a lot of people are having to sort of rethink how they teach in the pandemic and are just sort of curious how that's gone for you and how is how is teaching gone um, are you teaching in person at RIT or are you teaching remotely or a combination Yeah, we're of teaching both? Um, in person. And uh, luckily, the class sizes are pretty small. Um, and so I, one of my classes, I, there's 10 people, and that's the largest. But it has been weird. I mean, there's a thing about teaching where you're, where you're really, there's a kind of intimacy to it where you're trying to help people with techniques and trying to keep them safe on equipment. And it's hard to be six feet away from every process, um, which is pretty much impossible. But the other part is when you wear a mask and, you know, I've learned about smiling eyes, you can kind of tell someone's smiling just from how their eyes are, you know. So there's a thing that at first where when you can't see somebody's face, um, it makes it more difficult to to know what how everyone's feeling or how everybody's doing. We're learning how to read body language different now. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's been something um, pretty interesting. The assignments, you know, kind of the way we did assignments in the spring, like when everything shut down, gave an assignment. Basically, everybody had to work from home and they didn't have their tools and equipment. So one of the assignments I gave was just maintain a creative practice. And I just said, all right, just whatever it is, do something creative every day. It can be um, whatever you can do from home. And some people were doing some woodworking and some carving. Some people were were weaving. Some people were drawing and painting. Some people were making kimchi and baking yeah, bread. That's and, creative. That's uh, very creative. Yeah, and we just reported in on every every week, a couple times a week. And then another thing I, that I had everybody do was they had to create a, a library of images, kind of a slideshow at the end. Everybody showed the um, 
the library of images that they found inspiring. So everybody could kind of keep working on the things that were going to influence their work, things that were going to help them when they could get back in the studio. That's and one thing that Wayne Rabb encouraged us to do is a library of images during our first semester. And that, that was amazing. And then to be able to share them. You know, that, mm-hmm. was, that was really inspiring because you discover new things and learn about new things from what other people were discovering, too. And then the other thing that that happened, I guess, pandemic was, you know, since we couldn't ha- really have visiting artists, we all started to kind of have these Zoom meetings where we would invite invite colleagues mm-hmm. in on a class. So I um, I had invited some people in on my classes and they invited me um, to their classes. So it was pretty great. It was a really nice way to keep the community going. And, and my students were thrilled. You know, we, we had Zoom calls with Adam Manley and Katie uh-huh. Hudnall and and also with Tom Hucker was really generous. And we talked to him all about his studio practice. And it's been really fun on these Zoom calls to see, you know, like your friends in, on the West Coast or, you know, far away. It's, it's made me realize that, that we can, even if we're far away, we can maintain connection. So it's maybe the the, the part of the pandemic that that um, maybe some new learning will come out of this way of being able to communicate. Right. I mean, I, I think that, you know, an interesting thing is that people have learned a lot in this process and especially in sort of the educational process, we've sort of become, we become fixated on what we know how to do. And I think the beauty of this, nobody really having ever dealt with a pandemic before, you have to complete, you have to improvise all the time. And, I think uh, as artists, knowing how to improvise is a really important skill, as well as educators. And also, a lot of times we tend to work off what we know how to do and working as the basis of your work being what you don't know how to do, I think can really be enlightening. Yeah, definitely. Improvising is such an important part of part of it all. Even with teaching, when you, you know, you think it should be kind of kind of an approach that's not improvisational, you know, you, you think it should be kind of like you're working through particular assignments, but everybody needs something different. And when you're teaching, you're kind of reading, trying to read people and trying to help them. And it's also, you're learning a lot as a teacher. Like for me, I know as a, as a teacher now, I've been teaching at RIT for 21 years. And the, the secret is that, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I'm a, a student of yeah, all of you're lear- all of the people. Yeah. You're learning yeah. along with everybody else. Yeah, for sure. That, that's what in a, a lot of the educators that we've talked to have Corey Robinson and Adam Manley just, you know, they talk about learning. Wayne Rabb, too, you know, he, he just talk about learning along with the students. It's like being in a lab, you know, you're always, there are always experiments going on and kind of learn some skills and you kind of apply the theory to uh, figuring out how to make something. Like people go like, how should I do this? And you'll, you'll say, well, I don't know. I've never done that before, but let's, we'll figure it yeah, out. Yeah, let's, let's, uh, here's, here's four things we can try. Let's, let's give a go. Exactly. See what works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been great having you on the podcast, uh, Andy. So, uh, Andy Buck, we'd like to thank you to being, for being on Why Make and Why Make. Thank you. It's been great. You can listen to Why Make on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also grab our RSS feed or a direct download from our website, y-make.com. This episode is currently brought to you by the Holy Pockets of Rob and Eric. Please help us build our creative funding base at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whymakepodcast. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at at whymakepod. 
This episode is recorded on Squadcast and edited by us on Audacity. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.